At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello, uh, I'm David Nutt, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the first episode of the third series of the Drug Science Podcast. So we're back by popular request, and uh, today I'm speaking with uh, Gabor Mate, who is well-known globally for his pioneering work in terms of treating people with trauma right from childhood to the end of life. I'm sure you'll very much enjoy the insights he's going to give us, and also some reflections from him on how his own upbringing, which was truly remarkable and extraordinarily uh, stressful, have played out in making him the therapist that he is. Uh, Welcome, Gabor. Nice to be here, David. You've written a lot about uh, childhood and childhood traumas and and how they underpin many forms of addiction and uh, disorders like ADHD. But you yourself, I guess, suffered them at least to some extent or much closer to them than perhaps many people were. And I, I thought it would be really helpful if you could give us a little bit of your background in terms of how you got to Canada from, from where you were born. First of all, yes. Um, as a physician, I've had to recognize that a lot of the issues my clients were working with, I've been challenged with myself, including ADHD and depression and addictive patterns. Now, my personal background is that I was born in Hungary during the war in 1944. Jewish parents just two months before the Germans occupied Hungary. So I spent my first year as a Jewish infant under the shadow of the genocide with a very depressed, stressed, grieved mother whose parents were killed in Auschwitz. And her and I were fated to end up there ourselves. We didn't, but that's... That's because of historical details I won't go into, but it was a hard first year, um, and then at the end of which I was separated from her for six weeks, which for a one-year-old is is devastating. And uh, then I grew up in uh, communist Hungary, um, which anybody knows the history of Eastern Europe, know how stressful that was for a lot of people. And then in 1956, uh, we left the country after the Hungarian Revolution, emigrated to Canada, and then as an adolescent, I went through the travails of uh, being a foreigner in a strange land, and uh, here I am. It's quite it's a remarkable uh, story, and um, congratulations on coming out of it uh, so well. But I think it's also motivated you to to think deeply and write a lot about, uh, about the, those sort of impacts. And, uh, and was that what drove you into medicine eventually? Because I believe you started off being a teacher and then you changed to, to becoming a doctor. Well, it's an interesting issue. Um, I always wanted to be a doctor growing up. I mean, I was never going to be anything else. And it so happens that my grandfather, who was killed in Auschwitz, was a physician. And 
in retrospect, analyzing myself, I've wondered if I wasn't trying to take his place in my mother's heart because she, she idolized him. And again, my mother would tell me that as a physician, you carry your profession in your handbag. So whatever happens historically, you can take it with you. So these are influences on me. But all I can tell you is that I grew up, I always wanted to be a doctor. It was in late high school and that, that I realized that I didn't have the attention span to do, to do the medical work. I just didn't have the, I just didn't want to work that hard. And for me, I was always a last minute student and I can get, and, and I was interested in history and English literature and so on. And those came easy to me. But with the sciences, as you know, you don't, you, you can't do that. You can't do a last minute skim of the material and then do well on an organic chemistry exam, you know? So I did become, I defaulted into a high school, being a high school teacher, which I enjoyed, but I realized it wasn't really me. And by the time I was a second year teacher, I said, no, medicine, it is for me. And by that time I had the maturity to apply myself, ADD or not. It was hard work, but I could do it, so. It's not that you grew out of your ADD, you, you just managed to control it, did you? I don't know that I grew out of it, but I, I did have a certain degree of maturity where I realized that if I wanted something, I'd really have to work very hard for it. And I have to tell you, in my first two years of medical school, I really struggled with the basic sciences. Not that I, I had the intelligence to understand it, but the application to st study it, that was hard for me. And I wasn't in the top of my class in the first two years with my science whiz classmates, which by the way also has to do with who gets recruited to go to medicine. Uh, very often these scientifically minded, head-oriented people who don't necessarily make the best the physicians when it comes to human interaction. And the more um, it came to interacting with real patients, the, the more I found my skills, uh, my natural abilities came into be appreciated and, and more active. And is that why you decided then to to go into becoming a family physician? Because you wanted to deal with the whole person? That, that was a big part of it. I wanted to deal with the whole person. Uh, I wanted to get to know the whole family. Uh, but also, you know, by the time I finished medical school, having been an older student, I was 33. I didn't want to spend another five years qualifying for a residency. And um, it was really the best decision I ever made. Because uh, as a family physician, contrary to the specialists, I got to see the whole context, the whole dynamics, the the whole history, and, and I knew people before they were ill, so that I, I had some ideas to their lives that may have, that, that predated the illness. The specialists, when they see somebody, a diagnosis has already been made, or at least a diagnosis is already suspected, but they don't know the person in their real lives. And the way doctors are trained, they never even taught how to ask about the person in their real life, which is a family physician you have to. No, uh, it's critical. I mean, in, in a way, I'm a psychiatrist, as you may know, and uh, in a similar way, you get much more intimate with your patients because you, you actually need to find out about them as opposed to what their symptom is. Well, that's true, David, but it's not true for all psychiatrists. And uh, psychiatry certainly gives you the venue to do that. But how many psychiatrists do I know who simply just bi diagnose what they think are biological conditions and deal with them only through medication. So even in psychiatry, and by the way, also in family practice, I don't think that medical school prepares us to deal with the whole person very well. 
No, it's uh, it's something I always try to teach medical students. Two things: one is that, you know the privilege of being a doctor, and the second, the fact you can truly get to know people in a way which no one, never even even their own partners, really some, won't necessarily know because they won't necessarily disclose. So you, in effect, you're a family physician. You see the the range of problems, and then you obviously get very interested in the psychological ones. Yes, that's what happened. So I was in. I had a family practice for 20 years, and for seven of those years, I was also the director of a palliative care unit, the largest one in Canada. So I saw, I delivered babies, and then I looked after dying people. So I dealt with everything in between, and I saw the family dynamics. And sooner or later, as I had to deal with my own emotional issues, by the way, my own depression, my own ADHD, my own addictive tendencies, I also began to see in my clients that who got sick and who developed what condition wasn't random. It, it, you know, there were certain emotional life patterns that seemed to predispose or at least contribute to, I don't want to cause, I don't want to say cause, but, but contributed to illness, whether it's physical, chronic physical illness like multiple sclerosis, or rheumatoid arthritis, or addiction or mental illness, depression. These didn't arise out of the blue. They didn't fall from the sky. They were manifestations of a person's life. And this is where you, where you presumably came to this wonderful title of your book or one of your books uh, realm of the hungry ghosts i mean that's just it's a stunning title could you elaborate a bit on the what it means and how it came to you so in the realm of hungry ghosts deals with addiction and after 20 years of family practice i moved to i, I, I gave that up and um, that's a whole interesting story too but almost i was like called to by fate to go and work in vancouver's downtown east side now um the downtown east side of Vancouver is North America's and one of the world's most concentrated area of drug use. I mean, we have thousands of people in a few square block radius injecting and inhaling and in ingesting drugs of all kinds. And uh, the poverty and the disease and, you know, they're exponential down there. And um, so I worked down there and... I dealt with people with severe addictions and HIV and all their health ramifications. And uh, so I wrote my book on addiction. The title comes from Buddhist uh, cosmology. In the Buddhist realm, particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist realm, there's these six realms that people cycle through. The ordinary human realm, just ordinary selves. The animal realm, which is our basic drives and hungers and appetites the realm of the, the God realm, and then there's the realm of the hungry ghosts. And hungry ghosts are depicted as creatures with large empty bellies, small mouths, and very narrow gullets, very narrow esophagus, so that they're always hungry, they're always trying to fill themselves from the outside, but they can never get satiated. Now that, of course, is the realm of addiction. And... Um, it's not that some people in this one realm and others in the other realm. It's that we all go through all the realms. Some people more dominantly in one or the other. And certainly in the addicted realm, we're in the realm of the hungry ghosts. We're trying to fill some emptiness from the outside. We can never satiate ourselves. So you have to keep going and going and going. So hence the title. I hadn't heard of that before. And it is a truly <laughs> unforgettable title. Isn't it? And obviously it's, uh, it came from your the insights that you gained from talking to people about why they take drugs. And uh, I th I'd like to talk to you more about that because it, it's rather different from um, some approaches which are more biological and that drugs are pharmacological agents and they can't commandeer parts of brain circuits which 
uh, underpin things like reward. But but you're seeing them as uh, as replacing what people have lost in their childhood or in, you know in other phases of their life. Not but and you know and right you know uh, yes drugs do hijack the reward system in the brain and the pleasure elation reward and the motivation systems and they interfere with the self-regulation systems in the brain all that's true but david not just drugs i mean i i have addictive behaviors that seriously blighted my life and those of my family that had nothing to do with drugs and the same circuits were involved you know so that this distinction between drug addiction and and say um shopaholism or workaholism or pornography addiction or sex addiction or eating addiction it's it's a false distinction because it's all the same circuits now the point is not that this isn't biological the question is where does the biology come from and this is where a lot of medicine misses out on the science because the science shows that the brain develops in interaction with the environment so the motivational circuits the dopamine circuits the nucleus accumbens the, the the brain's emotional circuits the amygdala the hippocampus the orbitofrontal cortex these all develop in interaction with the environment and the more trauma and the more difficulty and the more stress there is from prenatal life onwards i'm talking about prenatal life you can stress pregnant animals and their offspring will lack dopamine receptors so they'll be more likely to do cocaine as adults so what i'm saying then is that the 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 biology that we deal with and that we talk about it's real it's biological but it's determined not determined but it's very much shaped and modulated by what happens to a person throughout their lifetime especially in early childhood so it's not biology versus psychology it's that the two cannot be separated yes but i think where the expertise comes in is trying to get get into the psychology in a way which helps i mean the biology yeah we can show pet scans fmri scans and that but that doesn't particularly help someone who is living on the streets and injecting in a in a doorway in downtown vancouver does it well no you're right it doesn't although if i understand the biology then at that moment as soon as i understand the biology i stop blaming the person and i stop shaming them and i say look you've got a real problem here and and i'm going to approach you from the point of view of how can i help you not how can i condemn you how can i um make you feel worse about yourself which unfortunately is the social approach to addiction so it really helps to know the biology but to get into the psychology there's a basic question i have to ask people and um which is whatever you're addicted to whether it's sex or gambling or drugs not what's wrong with it but what is right about it what does it do for you and people will say it gives me pleasure it helps me escape it relieves my pain it gives me a sense of control it makes me feel more connected to my friends it numbs numbs me and then i say well when do people have to be numbed when they're in pain when do people have to escape reality when reality distresses them why are they lacking pleasure in this life what happened to you so that to get into the psychology The simple question is what is the addiction doing for you? I know in the long term it's harming you, but in the short term what does it give you? And then you can have an investigation into well, how did you lose pleasure? Where were you hurt? 
Why do you feel, why do you need to feel numb? And that then opens up what you talked about earlier about getting to know that whole person. And I guess you were there, you were with the pioneering efforts to to bring some sort of uh, harm reduction program into Vancouver, which of course has now become world famous. Yeah, people give me more credit for that than I deserve. I, I didn't pioneer anything, but I was there when it happened. And I, I participated in some of the efforts, but the initiative and the thoughts came from other people, not from me. Um, the and, and this is true of hardcore drug addicts in general. In the downtown east side, in 12 years of work, David, I didn't have a single female, pa- female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. And all the men had been severely traumatized as well. And this is what the large-scale studies show as well, not just my personal interpretation. So some of them are so desperate to escape their lives that they're just not going to be ready to give up their drugs. So that me trying to force them into abstinence is to say, okay, I can't help you. But then the question becomes, if at this moment you're not ready to give up your drug because you're too physically dependent on it, you're terrified of withdrawal, or because the emotional pain that you're carrying is just too searing for you to give up the soothing of the drug or the behavior, then how can I help you reduce the harm? Well, what if I gave you... um, clean water to inject with rather than using puddled water from the back alley, you know. And um, there that, that was a British psychiatrist who actually said, uh, well, reducing, giving people clean needles is encouraging drug use and better they should live or die with the consequences of their behavior, you know. The, well, I don't, I don't accept that. In all of medicine, we're always reducing harm. I mean, when a workaholic business executive, type A personality who smokes, ends up in the emergency ward with a heart attack, I'm not going to say to him, I'm not going to give you any medicine for your heart pain. You caused it yourself with your smoking and your workaholism. You know, why would I do that to a drug addict? So reducing harm is simply, let's work with you, hoping you will be able to give it up. But until you do, can we make it safer for you? Can we ensure that you don't contract or pass HIV on to somebody else. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a drug science community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. A friend of mine has written a a book about how to cope with stress and depression, and he's put a quote in from you, and I'll I'll read this quote to you, because I think it really sums up what you've been saying. When you work with people daily, you recognise that you're not any different. It takes away the otherness of the addict. And to my mind, you know, isn't a lot of the stigmatizing of addicts about making them others just is a way of trying to, for people to avoid actually confronting the realities and also, the, the, you know, the responsibilities that we have to them, particularly when they become addicted to drugs, which, which we actually make money from, like alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. Well, again, I don't know what your personal experience is, but for myself, uh, when I looked at my most addictive clients, all I could see was somebody 
who was more unfortunate than I had been because I could recognize the same things in myself. See, in, in terms of my own history, although there were the terrible privations and traumas of the war, I basically grew up in a functional, loving family. My clients had not. But I still had those patterns. You know, I was still quite capable of ignoring duty, responsibility, love, family, to pursue my addictive behaviors. Who was that going to be to judge them for having been more hurt than I was and therefore being more desperate than I was? In medical school, and in psychoanalysis at least, when psychoanalysts used to be trained, for better or worse, they had to go through their own analysis. But in medical school, unfortunately, we're not really taught to look at ourselves too much. And uh, therefore, we can feel kind of superior to our patients and our clients. We're the experts. In reality, I may have known more than they did, but I wasn't all that different from them. No, I think, well, I just think it's a great quote, and I, I hadn't come across it before, but uh, I shall certainly be making sure my medical, <laughs> when I speak to medical students in future, I will use that. But then you did something even more kind of radical, rather than just treat addicts as human beings and try to let them survive long enough so that they can um, potentially find other ways of dealing with their traumas and their, their pains um, other than drugs. You then sought out, uh, I think, ayahuasca as a, as a way of trying to help people heal faster. And Could you tell us a bit about that and how did that come to you? Actually, what happened was that I, uh, I published my book, In the Realm of Hunger Goes, which is my fourth and until now most recent book. I've just written a new one, but that won't come out till next year. So Hunger Goes was published in Canada in 2008. And it became a bestseller, and I had a lot of speaking engagements and so on. And everywhere I went, somebody would put their hand up and say, Dr. Mate, what can you tell us about the healing of addiction with ayahuasca? And I say, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about it. A week later, in some other city, somebody else would put their hand up. And to tell you the truth, finally got sick of the question, because something in me, my ego said, well, for God's sakes, I've just spent three years writing a book, pouring my heart and soul into it, Ask me about something I know about. <laughs> and, but, but, then, but then, after one of these sessions, and it happened yet again, somebody came up to me and said, well, did you know you could... Now, ayahuasca, for those of... I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will know what this is about, but ayahuasca, for those who may not, is a plant that... Or at least it's a combination of plants. Well, it's a plant and a combination of plants that, that is, grows and is cultivated in the Amazon jungle. And shamans there have been using it as a healing modality for a long time. And it's, and it, it's a mind-altering substance that I'll talk about it more in a minute. But that's what it is. And, but somebody said to me, did you know you could experience it here in Vancouver? Because there's a Peruvian shaman that came up here and led some retreats. So I said, okay, the universe is trying to send me a message here, isn't it? And uh, that's one thing I've learned, is that the universe sends you messages if you know how to listen. And I don't necessarily listen very easily, but eventually, sometimes I do. And so I went to the ceremony, and in half an hour I got it, why people had been asking me. And what happened for me is that there was a little baby in the tent. There was a nursing mother whose husband was taking ayahuasca. And the baby was cooing and crying and... And these tears started rolling down my cheeks. Tears of pure love. And there's a number of things I realized, just, you know, instantaneously. Uh, one is how closed down to love I had been in my life. How hurt my heart had been 
and so it had to respond to that herd by closing down, which made it more difficult to have relationships. In many ways, I ran away, tried to compensate for the lack of open-heartedness through my mind, actually, by, by building up my mind, because I couldn't do how to deal with my heart. So I got that. So I got what I'd been running away from, this pain that I'd been running away from all my life. But I also got that that heart, that love. If I'm sounding too mushy here, forgive me, but I'm just telling you my experience. I I also experienced that, you know, people, we don't have to run any anymore. Like it, it's in, it's within us, so we can just find it. So that the plant brought up both the heartache, but also the beautiful reality. So I thought, well, this is what addiction is all about. It's all about pain that people are trying to run away from. What if they could? actually get in touch with that pain in a context where they don't have to run away from it. They can actually experience it and had it be held and had it be, have it been compassionately responded to. And what if they experience that deep love, that deep self that's underneath it from which they don't have to run at all. And so then I began to work with ayahuasca, but I decided that just chanting and so on as they do in the Shipibo or the native traditions for the Western mind is not enough. So we develop these retreats where we, where we have the shamanic tradition. I don't. I'm not a shaman. I don't do this. But people who are trained that way, or you know, they pour the plant, they pour the medicine, they do the chanting, they lead the ceremonies. But I could help people prepare for the ceremony and integrate their experience afterwards. So I've been doing that for 12 years now, and it's some of the most rewarding work that I've done. It's actually got interesting parallels. And I, I didn't know about it when we started doing our psilocybin uh, in depressions work. And, but I think the principles are very similar. It, it helps people understand why they're where they are and, and why they're thinking the way they, they do. And, and on top of that, it, I think these medicines help people find ways, new ways of thinking and ways of escaping from the, the traps they've, they've been thrust into or their mind has got them into. Well, exactly. Don't you find that it, it relaxes the hold of the conditioned personality so people can look at the truth underneath it? Because a lot of the personality, which includes our emotional reactions and our habitual patterns and what we believe about ourselves, these are conditioned uh, entities and they're conditioned by early experience and often early trauma. But underneath it, there's a truer self that, that knows better just doesn't have a chance to assert itself because we've built up such a crust of, of belief and we've put out such barriers against some of the realities of life. Psychedelics, you know, psilocybin included, and I've had some experience with that as well. They help you get, they dissolve that curtain at least temporarily. Absolutely, and I think that analysis is quite right. In defending, in people defending themselves against their traumas, their stresses, they, they, they develop mental processes which in the end dominate and become, if not self-destructive, but kind of self-fulfilling so that you can never get to, you know, be, beyond them. You become repetitive and, and they lock you into a mindset which, you, which the psychedelics, I think, can help you escape from. Absolutely. Um, let me tell you an amazing story. Um, I know both the person and their medical history through their physician, so this is not at all fanciful. Somebody with scleroderma, and scleroderma is an autoimmune condition where the immune system attacks the body. And in this case, the connective tissue causing rigidity. Sclerosis means hardening, derm skin, so hardened skin. But not just the skin gets hardened, the connective tissues of the, of the muscles, the esophagus, the heart, the lungs. 
and it's a potentially fatal condition. And this person literally was bedbound. Her face was a tightened mask of grimace because she no longer used her facial muscles. I'm telling you this, I witnessed this myself. All she wanted to do was to die. She lives in Boston. If there had been euthanasia in Boston at the time, she would have chosen it. And then she found out about ayahuasca. Now she couldn't travel to any retreats. She couldn't even get out of bed on her own. She decided to order some ayahuasca. I don't know how she got it. She drank it. And that night she stood up on her own for the first time in six months. Right now, she's active. She goes on hikes. She's writing her biography. And, and I'm in personal contact with her because she came to ayahuasca ceremonies that I led. By transforming her relationship to herself, her nervous system and her immune system and everything else responded. I'm, look, I'm not p- putting this out to people. If you got an autoimmune disease, go doing some ayahuasca. I'm not giving you that advice. All I'm talking about is the potential in transformation and the impact that that can have. And I spoke with her physician and this story was verified, you know. So I've seen the same thing happen in addictions, in, in, as I'm sure you have, in depression, in anxiety, in all manner of life issues. Yes, I mean, the nervous system controls pretty much everything. And it's completely credible that this woman was having some kind of detrimental nervous activity that was locking her up and you can unlocking it. Let's hope uh, others uh, try to get on that route as well, because it would be quite a revolution, wouldn't it? Well, and and scientifically, it's not even all that surprising because we know scientifically that the nervous system is not separable from the immune system or the hormonal apparatus or the cardiovascular apparatus or from the gut. This is all one system. And those are all connected and part and parcel of the brain's emotional centers. So that when there's a change in the nervous system or or the emotional system, that's going to have an impact on the whole body. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, anyway, we we know the negatives of that. We know, you know, depressed people die of heart attacks, etc., much younger than they should otherwise. But, but it's great to see that that's being rectified. But my understanding was that your uh, ayahuasca experiments weren't necessarily uh, met with pleasure by some of the authorities. Is that right? In Canada, in a downtown inside of Vancouver, thirty percent of my clients were First Nation Aboriginal Canadians. They make up five percent of the population. In Canada, as in other colonial countries like Australia, Aboriginal people make up about 30% of the jail population. They only make up 5% of the general population. Why is that? Because they're the most traumatized segment of the population. And so the conditions, you know, Canada is often thought of as one of the great countries in the world in terms of happiness and so on. And it's got many great qualities, but it's an absolute appalling catastrophe when it comes to how we deal with our native populations, many of whom live in terrible conditions, lack of potable water, a lot of disease. And because of multi-generational trauma imposed on them by the state, the trauma is passed on from one generation to the other. So one of the native communities in British Columbia invited me to lead some ayahuasca retreats for them as part of a study, that an observational study. So we did that. The results were great. I've just had another invitation many years later to come back and work with them again because the results were so impressive in terms of addictions and so on. Because strangely enough, in Canada, you can import ayahuasca for religious purposes. 
So the Church of Santo Daime, which is a Brazilian-based religious uh, organization, they can bring the ayahuasca. So I thought, if they can, why can't we? You know, because Health Canada, which is Canadian Health Authority, had already decided that ayahuasca was neither addictive nor dangerous. So I thought, well, if that's the case, why can't we use it for healing purposes? But of course, I got so I got this letter. Uh, saying cease and desist. I said, okay, thank you very much. But that's all, no big deal. And um, strangely enough, what was interesting is that the medical college, which governs medical practice, they never came after me about this. Or maybe they don't read the news, I don't know. Maybe they never found out that I work with ayahuasca. But I, I didn't get into too much trouble. I just got this letter. And I said, okay. They said, you can't do studies unless we approve it. Okay, thank you, I won't do studies. Oh, you'll do treatment. <laughs> but I continue to work with the plant. I'll, I just didn't put it in the newspapers. It's interesting that uh, this is the 50th year since the, the 1971 UN Convention, which, which basically tried to eliminate all knowledge, use, memory of these drugs. And uh, I mean, I've often argued that's the worst censorship of science, but also medicine in the history of the world. I mean, would, would you sympathize and agree with that? Well, when I look at David, the um, positive changes and transformations, like with this woman with scleroderma I told you about, others with addictions, others with lifelong issues with themselves and their families, just, I led a retreat in Peru last year with ayahuasca. I'm not gonna go into the details of it now, but there was a physician there very high-ranking physician in Canada. I'm not going to say more about him. I spoke to him recently, and he said, prior to that retreat, 30 years of medicine, he just wanted to retire. He was sick of it. Since the transformation that he experienced at that retreat, his life has just opened up. His work can become exciting again. He loves interacting with his patients now, and he works with veterans with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, just about the hardest work he can do. And, uh, and their physical problems. He says, I love my work now. I love, there's a joy in it. There's a humanity in it. Now, what I'm trying to say is in response to your question, when I consider all these positive transformations that I witnessed, and when I think of all the potential, and especially when I think of the utter failure of Western medicine to deal with a lot of psychiatric issues, including addiction, but a whole lot of others as well. As a psychiatrist, I'm sure you'd sign on to that one. It's an absolute travesty that is such a promising modality, which, by the way, neither nobody's saying is the panacea for everybody, but it's a, it can do what no Western medicine can do, or, the, or these, this class of substances can do things in the proper context. They can achieve results that Western medicine can't even aspire to. It's a travesty. So it is, a, it, it is a denial of science is what it is. Do you think things are beginning to ease up in, in Canada now? Do you think you're hopeful? Things are beginning to ease up. Not, not fast enough, but there are a number of organizations now who are establishing clinics and who are applying for special authority to use very psychedelic psilocybin and ketamine. Some people are using, are planning to apply for permission to use ayahuasca. There's a lot more conversation about it. And that conversation goes back to what I was saying just now, is that given the dire limitations of Western medicine in, in, in approaching and addressing these conditions, people do want an answer, and people do want other alternatives. And so 
the, the conversation has opened up in the last 10 years, remarkably so. So not fast enough as far as I'm concerned. From a scientific basis, we should have gone much further by now. But at least things are becoming much more open. And very interesting, your, your observation about lady with the scleroderma, because I've tended to think, in fact, my thinking with psychedelics has largely been around um, depression and, and possibly addiction. That's where I would like to move. But, you, you know, you're well ahead of us there. But the idea of moving it into more, what you might call traditional physical medicine, I mean, that would be a, that would be a tremendous gain. If, you could, if we could begin to, to get... <laughs> The traditional physicians sympathetic. That would could be an enormous um, change in attitude, couldn't it? Well, so I've written another book called When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, which shows that in a lot of these chronic physical conditions like scleroderma, like autoimmune diseases, the rheumatoid arthritis, heart disease and so on, they people's life histories and emotional patterns play a huge role. And uh, because of that mind-body unity, the whole study of psychoneuroimmunology, which looks at the unity of the nervous system with the immune system, the hormonal apparatus, uh, the, the emotional systems in the brain, because of the unity of it all, you can't separate any aspect of a person's functioning from the other aspects. And so that I, I've known people with multiple sclerosis who have done emotional work, but specifically psychedelic work, they do their physical illnesses a lot better because the physical illness is not an isolated uh, process. So when they change their relationship to themselves and to their lives, when they learn not to take on stress so much, I mean, there's a whole vast literature. I mean, I could wax on for three hours about the relationship between stress and multiple sclerosis, which has been studied and scientifically shown. I'm not making this up, but the average person who sees a neurologist will never get asked about their stress. It'll all be about the physical manifestations of multiple sclerosis and what can we do about it medication-wise. That's it. And I'm telling you, when people deal with their emotional issues, the stresses, is their body saying no to where they're not saying no in their lives? Because they were patterned not to say no in their childhood. They learned to take on too much stress. When that changes, of course the disease process changes. And psychedelics are a doorway into all that for all the reasons we've talked about. So it's no big stretch for me to see the use of psychedelics and physical illness. Yes, you, you made me reflect on why I left neurology to become a psychiatrist. It was, mm. it was one clinic where I, one afternoon, when patient after patient with multiple sclerosis, when all we did was work out the ex extent of their reflex disorders and never, ever, never talked to the patient about the suffering or the fears. And I realized, you know, this, this wasn't for me. I wanted, uh, I wanted a, a more holistic approach to medicine. Well, you know, David, there's been a whole lot of studies showing the relationship between childhood trauma and multiple sclerosis. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I could send you the literature. Like, you know, uh, in my new book, I, I, I talk about all that again. And, and, and so, so childhood trauma and lifelong stresses, relationship problems. This is, I'm talking about dozens and dozens of studies. I'm not, you know, you, you talk to anybody, but like people with childhood trauma, have at least doubled the risk of multiple sclerosis, at least double, if not more. In a Danish study, parents who've lost a child, they have doubled the risk of multiple sclerosis. So tell me more about your new book. What is it called and when's it coming out? <laughs> so the title will be, and it will be published in all the English-speaking countries. It's called The Myth of Normal Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. And I've 
I've written it. I've written way too much. It's about a double the length that it needs to be. So I'm anxiously waiting here, hear back from my publishers about what they think of what I've given them. But it, it, knock on wood, it'll come out next fall. Great. Well, if you're up for it, I'll have you back and we can talk about that in more detail next year, Gavo. But just before you go, I just want to go back to something you said very early on which when you were a family physician, you did everything from delivering babies to helping people come to terms with dying. And I wondered, have you thought more about the role of, of psychedelics in palliative care, end-of-life care? Well, yes. And uh, at the time that I was, when I was working in palliative care, I didn't know about psychedelics. This is up to the mid-'90s, something like that. <clears throat> Since then, of course, I've worked with people I can tell you a case about a man with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or in Britain known as motor neuron disease. This is another one of these conditions which I talked to you a whole lot about trauma and stress and so on. This man had the bulbar kind, which affects the muscles of speech and swallowing. He was physically perfectly able to walk and get on, but he had trouble speaking. And he came to this ayahuasca retreat, and he said in a very halting voice, you know, I came because I want to live. At the end of a week after three ceremonies, he said in a much stronger voice, he said, I said I came because I wanted to live, and I realize now that doesn't mean that I have to live longer. It means that as long as I have left, I want to be fully alive, fully in touch with myself. And he died according to his prognosis a year and a half later, but he was a happy man, and, and his family experienced him as totally different. So, and, and of course, we know the studies with psilocybin and end-of-life anxiety. So, yes, I'd love to see psychedelics introduced more into palliative care. Well, that's a, uh, something I can totally endorse, and maybe we can work together with others to do that. So, Gabor, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And uh, as I said, when your new book's out, get back to me, and if you want, we'll do another podcast and go into a, a deeper dive into some of these physical consequences of chronic stress. I'd be more than delighted to come back, David. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. He's a remarkable man, Gabor, and uh, it's a pity there aren't more doctors like him. We're now in the third series. We've got a number of other very eminent and uh, famous researchers in the field of addiction and people with who also have uh, quite important and novel takes on interventions and approaches that they think can revolutionise the way in which we uh, uh, view addiction and also work towards preventing it. So look out for those. Many of you may know that 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act. And Drug Science is teaming up with Transform and Release to put on a very public campaign to show how disastrous that act has been. It's filled our prisons with individuals who use drugs but are not really at harm to anyone else. And it's seriously impeded research in a whole range of different areas of medicine, particularly psychiatry and addiction. So follow us over the next year because we will be campaigning to show you how awful the act has been and help us develop a new strategy that potentially could remedy these problems. We'll be lobbying government, we'll be lobbying the media, and we'll be hoping to get things changed because we can't go on for another 50 years 
with an act that is so unfit for purpose. I also want to remind you that uh, the drug science community is going from strength to strength. Uh, just before Christmas, we initiated a, a new round of funding uh, which allowed people who subscribed to the community to get a, a personalised copy of my book, which is called Nut Uncut, and tells the story of some of my struggles against the authorities, against politicians, and also with science as well. So if you want a copy of that book, you can certainly buy one, but if you join the community, you will get a personalised copy signed to you or whoever you want it signed to. You'll also have an opportunity to join in a, uh, an evening when you can ask me any question you like. And also you'll be invited to the House of Lords reception, which will happen later in this year when COVID has settled down. So think carefully, and if you can join us, well, we'd be very grateful because your support will keep drug science going and help us keep podcasts like this uh, at the very forefront of the battle to tell the truth about drugs. Thank you. Thank you.